Welcome to Behave, the behavioural science podcast where we discuss, explore and aim to showcase the practical benefits of layering behavioural insights to deliver more effective marketing results and business growth. Hosted by Pedro Martins, a director at Total Media, the behavioural planning agency. Remember to rate us on wherever you listen to podcasts and for any questions, feedback or requests for future topics, please email us at podcast at behave.co.uk. For more information on anything discussed in the episode and useful downloads, please visit behave.co.uk forward slash podcast. Welcome to Behave, the podcast that aims to showcase practical business benefits through the application of behavioural science to your marketing. So, welcome to our seminar today on building habits. Uh, I think you're all joined because you know the importance and how important habits can be in it to product, to business, and how important these repeat habits help brands grow and help products sell. So before we, I introduce our wonderful speaker today and the subject matter, just thought I'd introduce us as a business. I'm Pedro, I'm a director here at Total Media Group. And we uh, have a number of different agencies. We have a UK's leading media, uh, behavioral media planning and buying behavioral agency. Uh, and we also have Behave, which is uh, one of the UK's leading behavioural consultancies, uh, which really focuses on driving consumer insight and behavioural insight to help commercial growth of businesses. And as you'd expect, we have all the latest tools, tech, science in the business to help drive that. But we also have the best in class minds and smartest minds in the business, consisting of analysts, behavioural economists, psychologists, doctors with PhD in cognitive neuroscientists, and many, many more. So, for the next 25 minutes or so, I'm going to hand over to Will Hanna-Lloyd, who is our Head of Behavioural Strategy and Planning at Total Media Group and Behave, and he's going to talk you through the importance of building habits and how we do that and how we progress that. The whole seminar should last approximately 40 to 45 minutes, so you're pleased to hear you'll get some time back towards the end, and we should look to finish about quarter two. So without further ado, Will, over to you. Uh, just before I do, sorry, Will, just one last thing to say. If you do have any questions throughout, which I'm sure you will, please just drop them in the chat box and um, we'll, we'll ask Will at the end. Thanks, Pedro. Um, so, as Pez mentioned there, we're going to uh, look to talk about building habits for brands. Uh, and that's obviously understanding how we can drive kind of behaviour that suits our brand from using our product, buying our product consistently over time. Uh, and the first step to that is understanding habits. So uh, I think it's important to understand kind of the difference between uh, habits and consistent kind of rational behavior. Often our, our new behavior begins with conscious deliberation. So when we approach something new, something that we haven't done before, um, what we'll find is that uh, we consciously think about it. Um, and as we learn and repeat the behavior over time, our brain shortcuts this deliberative process um, so that we perform the behavior automatically. It kind of shortcuts the circuit and we start finding that we perform it without uh, the same need for deliberation, conscious thought and weighing of the pros and cons of what we're doing. And the reason we start to perform this behavior automatically is that uh, generally speaking, we don't like to um, put too much effort into anything. So as was famously said by Daniel Kahneman, uh, humans are to thinking as cats are to swimming. We can do it when we have to, but we'd much prefer not to. And what that means is that we, as often as possible, want to slip into that habit behavior um, that is more instinctive, more automatic, and doesn't require as much conscious thought. Uh, and that means that research estimates that 45% of the activities that people undertake every day are habitual. That's a stat that a lot of people have probably heard before. It comes from a study, as many studies in this field does, uh, from students where they were given watches uh, that would buzz at random times of the day. And they recorded their behavior to see whether it was something that they did consistently at that time uh, with limited thought or whether it was a much more kind of deliberative act. And they estimated, as, as this shows, that 45% of the activities that people undertake are habitual. So they represent a huge amount of our behavior and are therefore really important uh, to marketers and any brands looking to incorporate their products 
into people's habits, uh, either usage or shopping. Uh, and it's important to understand why do we care? Habits can explain half why half of new products fail, uh, kind of as one estimate. So new products or services are frequently new behaviors. Uh, we're looking to get people to do a new thing uh, and incorporate that into their lives. And they often fail, not because people aren't aware of them or even because people don't intend to use them, but because they fail to create or fit into a new habit. And so they end up falling by the wayside, not because they've been consciously rejected, but just because people slip into their old habits that don't include uh, our product or service and therefore they, they fail because they don't get used, even if they're not consciously rejected. Um, and so one of the key things to understand is how we form habits and therefore how we can get our products or services to fit into people's habits or become part of people's habits. So there's kind of a relatively recognized way of understanding how habits form. Uh, and it's this circle you can see here that there's a cue, a routine and a reward. So what does that mean? Well, the first is the cue, and this is often a trigger that tells your brain to go into automatic mode uh, and use the habit. This can be emotional, it can be context specific, it can be environment specific, it can be uh, time specific, it could be anything from seeing uh, a specific item that reminds you you need to do something to you clean your teeth straight after you get out of bed uh, in the morning. Uh, or straight after breakfast. It, it's a cue, something that triggers you into that automatic habit. Then there's the routine, and that's you performing that activity automatically when you encounter that cue or that trigger uh, to make you do it. Uh, and the more you repeat that, so the more that you automatically do that thing, the more likely it is to become a habit. There is research that suggests, uh, again, the average is 66 days but, uh, of doing something will make it become habitual. But I think more important than that is that the research actually showed it can range from 18 days to 250 plus days. So there's a very broad spectrum. It's not a situation of just hit 66 days and it will become a habit. It varies very much by the type of behavior, uh, type of product um, that we're talking about. And finally, there's a reward. So it's really important, this completes this, that when people uh, are triggered to the behavior and then do it, there needs to be some form of reward that makes their brain go, ah, this is something worth doing, something worth repeating. Um, and it's that virtuous circle of those three that drives something into becoming a behavior. So a simple kind of diagram here, just to, to summarize and understand the difference. We've got very much goal-directed decisions where uh, it's the prefrontal cortex, but you know it's where we're responsible for newer and frequent behaviors. We have attitudes, goals, values. It can be very conscious and deliberate. Uh, and often the performance is relatively slow and it, it takes quite a lot of mental energy. But what we're thinking about here is our habit system. Uh, and that is actually kind of responsible for all our established or frequent behaviors. It's guided by cues or triggers. It's less conscious, it's more automatic. The performance is quick using heuristics and it actually is responsible for a huge amount of our behavior and often behavior that we don't particularly realize uh, that we're making or is habitual. So from there, what I wanted to look at today was strategies for steering people to build the habits we want. So how can we use this understanding uh, from the point of view of marketing, uh, product development, uh, in order to drive the habitual behavior that we want? And there are lots and lots of strategies based on this, but I wanted to touch on five um, that incorporate ways we can use an understanding of habits to drive an uptake in usage of brands. The first is just understanding that habits are important and piggybacking existing habits. And this isn't necessarily about desperately trying to create new habits, but understanding where habits already exist in people's lives and how we can fit our brands into that so that we'll drive usage or get them to use services we want. Um, two, three or four are more about creating new habits. 
So creating those cues and the rewards that we want, how can we create the appropriate triggers and rewards that will make something become a habitual behavior? Uh, an interesting look at number three, making rewards variable so that we can understand the ways in which we can make the reward even more likely to make a behavior become habitual and then making the new behavior as easy as possible to do. This makes it much more likely that people will do it more often. It will become part of their routine. It will become a habit uh, and reflects an often true thing that we get from behavioral science, which is that just as important as motivation is people's capability and ability to do something, how easy it is to do. And that often we shouldn't just focus on increasing motivation, but we should think of all the ways we can make the action easy as well. And finally, five is tapping into life events and moments of change. And this, rather than being about all of our understanding of habits and creating them and using that to make new habits, it's understanding those moments in people's lives where often their normal patterns are disrupted and they begin to form lots of new habits and how we can take advantage of that to put our brand or our product in uh, and let it become part of the new habits that people form so that they'll become long-term customers. Um, so I'll go through these and they kind of pull out a few examples of how we thought about it with some clients of ours, plus some famous examples of how other brands have used it. And at the end kind of can talk if anybody's got any questions of potentially how they can apply to other areas. So piggybacking uh, existing behaviors, there's a very kind of famous example of this uh, that was done by the London Fire Brigade. Uh, and this is all about trying to find a behavior that people are highly likely to carry out and connecting the desired behavior change to it uh, in order to create a new habit. So one of the things the London Fire Brigade found was that it's very difficult to get people to uh, check their fire alarms. It's the type of thing we all know we should do. Uh, we usually, most people say they have a high intention to do it at some point, but we just never get round to doing. And so they ran a campaign that was saying that when the clocks change and you've got to go around your house to change the clocks, you should also check your fire alarms there. So it fits into an existing behavior. Uh, and based on, on the campaign, they felt that people who saw the campaign were three times more likely to test their smoke alarm when the clocks changed. So a really effective way to tap into an existing behavior. One of the ways we've used this with clients, and I think can be quite an interesting way to think about it, is life admin. So there are lots of types of brands. And one example for us was one family that's a financial brand setting up ISAs that need people to sit down and do admin uh, in order to set them up. Uh, and we think it's really good to try and tap into life admin that people are already doing. Similar to uh, fire alarms and, and smoke alarms, it's the sort of thing where people know they should do it, um, but actually getting around and sitting down and doing it is quite a big step. Whereas if you can reach someone at a moment when they're already doing other life admin, so they're in the process of doing that, uh, and add it as one more thing to do, you're piggybacking that existing behavior and it makes it a lot easier. So with one family, we found moments where people were doing life admin and got them to do that one more thing of sorting out ISIS for the future. Uh, and you can either do this by things like touch points, which tell you when people are more likely to be doing life admin or with uh, display advertising that's contextually relevant. So you know you're reaching people at those moments when they're likely to be doing life admin. Um, the second part is creating cues and uh, triggers uh, and rewards for people. And this is, is mostly focused about how we can try and make uh, the usage of our products uh, a habit. It's often particularly good for things that you buy frequently. So FMCG products where you, you might buy it weekly, monthly, uh, other products, kind of subscription services where you want people to continually use it so they're more likely to stay a customer. Um, and just a reminder here that it's the Q routine reward. So a trigger, how we can make it easy for people to do it and then how we can, can build a reward. So one of the really famous examples of this um, was Pepsodent. So this was toothpaste uh, and they were really keen to get people uh, to clean their teeth more often uh, and do it habitually. And historically, as much as it might seem odd now, people weren't taking up cleaning their teeth regularly. 
although toothpaste had been invented, although the importance of teeth cleaning had been set, uh, it was actually very hard for people to get it into a habit. Uh, and it was really smart work by Pepsodent initially that first created cues for when people should do it. So before bed and after breakfast, uh, creating two very well understood moments where you habitually clean your teeth. And they were also the first people to add a minty taste to create a reward. It doesn't have to be a huge payoff, but just by adding that bit of mint, that sensation that our brain responds to, they created a reward. And those two things meant there was an easy cue of when people were meant to do it and their brain built a reward system for it. And that meant that it became habitual and really helped grow uh, everyone cleaning their teeth and is now obviously a standard practice that we all see um, across the country and across the world. And so we've tried to look at that and, and take that thinking towards our clients. Um, historically, we talked to rustlers about how you can get kids um, or how you can get it to become habitual so that you make a rustler's burger. Uh, and one of the things is trying to think of cues or moments that they can own where it's you turn to rustlers as the solution. So when your kids have friends around or after kids evening activities, these are very regular events. They can disturb the normal pattern of meal cooking that uh, people would have, but often a solution where rustlers burgers can be very easy uh, as a way to feed a number of people or a kid who's immediately hungry. And they're very obvious cues of when a friend has other people or kid has friends turn up or when your kids come back from an activity, you've created that scenario queue where they have the burger. Rustlers by definition is very easy to make. It's 90 seconds and the reward is inherent in the product because people enjoy it or the parent will enjoy seeing their kid uh, be satisfied and happy having a meal. Um, but that was very much kind of done through creative. So it's, it's in that instance saying to people, here's the time that you can make this product and use the product. Here's the cue to respond to. As well as it being based on creative, you can use media to target the right context. So with Carabao, when we launched them, we wanted it to become habitually used. We wanted to align the product to key triggers of when people wanted an energy boost. So Carabao is a, a low sugar energy drink um, entering a very busy market. But we try to find those key moments when people wanted energy, consistently target them with ads for Carabao near locations that they could buy it so that we could build that association that when you need that energy boost, when you get that cue, uh, you then buy Carabao. Some examples were afternoons at work. So there's a very noticeable pattern you can see on touch points and we've probably all experienced that about three in the afternoon, we all generally have a low energy slump where we feel slightly more tired than we did during a lot of the day. Um, and that was a really good opportunity for us to work, reach people and go, now's the time you probably need an energy boost. Um, also, I think very relevant to people in media and marketing. So going out on a Friday um, and a Saturday, Friday after work is often a time where people need an energy boost after a long week of work. I know from a personal point of view that often I'll make plans for a Friday and when it comes around to it, I can't think of anything worse than actually having to go out and see people. Um, and so associating the energy boost with that moment that happens for a lot of people every week was a way to become uh, some, a product that could be habitually used uh, every Friday I need that energy boost to see people. Here's the product. It's easy to buy. And then uh, the reward is the energy boost and the good time that you have. Uh, there were lots of others, but one that I found interesting was we found the only group of people really that drank energy drinks at six in the morning. There were two groups of people, a few students who were attempting to keep the party going uh, and mostly early rising manual workers who would have energy drinks at incredibly early hours in the morning in order to take on the day and again we could target that in areas that had a high proportion of manual workers with out of home that was targeted to that early morning uh, commute often at a time before most workers are traveling saying have an energy boost this will get you through uh, the hard mornings work that you've got and these therefore worked by being very contextually relevant to those moments that people uh, could associate with the product
what's really strong is when you can combine the creative with the uh, media context and potentially the product as well. Uh, and so one example of this is conversation with BritBox, looking at uh, viewing occasions by the audience that BritBox can begin to own. So is it Sunday night relaxed viewing, a couple film, uh, watching something on a lunch break from work, where you can hit those moments, have creative about BritBox being a thing to turn to, um, and you reinforce that messaging with CRM, social paid, so across your owned channels as well as paid, and you start to create that habitual behavior of turning to BritBox um, when you want to watch something in a specific context. And I think this is really interesting because a lot of the research we've done around viewing shows that a lot of it is driven by habit. So for instance, if people sit down to watch TV, they often have a set number of six, seven channels that they will habitually check before any others. And in different contexts, people now who have uh, different uh, SVOD providers will find in different contexts, they'll sit down, they'll check different ones first, uh, depending upon the type of viewing that they are doing. And so it's a really good opportunity to try and create those cues, those triggers that will be relevant for BritBox so that when they happen, people think that's the SVOD provider I'll check. And by owning those specific contexts, it can often enable you to, to have your moments and your habits where they check you over potentially more prominent or well-known uh, services they might have like Netflix. In terms of reward, those products all have rewards inherently tied into them. Uh, so obviously BritBox, you get the joy of watching, uh, Carabao and Energy Boost and Rustlers, you get to eat something tasty that you enjoy. But not all products have a reward and therefore it's often important if you want to drive long-term usage to think about how you can attach a reward to the usage of your product. A really famous example of this that's often talked about is Febreze, um, which was originally odorless. Um, and many people felt that, that meant it struggled early on. And one of the things they did was added a pleasant smell and then created the line two sprays and we're clean to create a reward when the brand is used. So it became actually when you'd finished cleaning, you would do two sprays of Febreze, which would create a pleasant smell. And that would mean that not only was the product beneficial from a practical point of view, it created a reward because you associated that pleasant smell with the satisfaction of finishing cleaning. And that additional reward drove the increased likelihood that it would become a habitual behavior and made Febreze much more successful. And I think uh, there's a lot of areas where potentially products don't have natural rewards built into the moment. So for instance, in healthcare, if you're trying to get people to daily use uh, a sinus spray, for instance, it isn't automatic, the reward there. It may be long-term beneficial, but there isn't a reward. And so one of the things we could think about with the campaigns is how can we get people to attach their own reward to the usage um, of the product and therefore drive long-term habitual use? There's a very um, famous psychologist called Dan Ariely, who uh, people may know um, has developed a lot of kind of thinking in the areas of behavioral science. And he suffered um, a lot of uh, burns when he was young uh, and had to go through a lot of treatment. And one of the things he did was uh, every time he had to take medication, it actually made him quite sick and feel quite ill. Uh, so what he did was every time he took it, he watched a film and that association of it being not just I get the reward, I'll watch the film, but by building that positive association, he said he became very successful at taking the medication and was actually one of the only people that took it without ever missing it because adding that reward helped make it habitual. And I think we can think, try and think of ways in healthcare of going, when you have this product, what little thing can we suggest people do afterwards that will create that sense of reward and actually make them start to habitually use the product without thinking uh, too rationally about it. One interesting thing in the area of reward is um, that actually something that is consistently rewarding isn't necessarily as uh, likely to become habitually used as something that has a variable reward. So there is a, a famous study done, I think in the 1950s by 
uh, BF Skinner, where they looked at mice pushing a button to get a reward. Uh, and if they got a consistent reward, they, they'd push it a bit. If the reward was variable, so sometimes they got nothing, sometimes they got a really big bit of food. I think in some of the studies, they even occasionally gave them uh, a shock. They found that variable reward made the mice much more likely to push for reward more often. Uh, and that's because we're not just addicted to winning, but we're addicted to the stress of trying to get a reward that we're not sure we'll get. And neuroscience has revealed that actually our, our dopamine system works not to just reward our efforts, but to keep us in a semi-state of stress, searching for kind of a reward. And I think that's really interesting because it's true of a lot of different areas, whether you think about computer games, it's not always about the payoff, but we're addicted to the stress of playing. Uh, and one example that I thought was relevant to me is sport. Uh, England, we've seen them play a lot. We've seen them lose in a lot of penalty shootouts. The fact that you don't know whether they're going to win or lose, the reward, the payoff at the end is variable, makes it more addictive. Um, and it's interesting because it means that often we're not addicted to the winning from our team, but we're addicted to watching because of the semi kind of stressful state that it induces. Now, obviously, lots of products aren't going to put a variable reward. If you're going to use a Hoover, you don't want it to sometimes clean and sometimes not clean. Um, but there are types of products that really benefit from this variable reward. And one example is social media. So actually, one of the reasons that social media is as addictive and as used as often as it is, is because the reward is variable. Sometimes when you open your Facebook account or Instagram account, you see a funny cat video or you see a picture of your nephew looking cute and it makes you smile and it's a very positive reward. But other times you see friends on a holiday uh, that looks much more exciting than what you're doing or someone posting about how successful their life is or an ex of yours with a new, more attractive, more successful partner and you get a negative response to it. But the fact that the response can be negative sometimes and positive sometimes makes you more likely to become addicted because it, it makes the positive feel stronger and makes it slightly more stressful. Uh, and it was actually interesting because we think it's about a 50-50 split is the most likely to get people are almost addicted to habitually checking or using something. And we recently did an analysis of uh, the social media feeds of 25 to 45 year olds on Twitter. Uh, and we ran all the stuff that they were following with engaging um, through a tool of ours that looks at the emotional uh, emotion of the content that people are looking at. And we found the three most dominant emotions of the content people are looking at on Twitter were anger, exasperation, and sadness before the fourth one was joy. So increasingly, actually, social media we're finding is, is providing a lot of negativity as well as positivity, but that's making people more addicted to it and enjoy it and become higher in their usage. So as well as thinking about that's obviously cues and rewards uh, and making you know, the product have a, a trigger and a reward that people have, we also want it to be as easy as possible to do. And that's because the easier it is to do, the more times people are likely to do it and the more likely it is then to become a habit. And in fact, you can get massive gains from some, making something a little bit more easy, not just because you get people to do it a few more times because it was easier, but because you cross that threshold of they do it enough times it becomes part of their routine and it becomes a habit. So in some ways it can almost be a tipping point that takes you from a limited amount of usage to a, a huge jump in usage. And obviously there's, there's lots of examples of this, but I think COVID has shown quite a few. If we think about following rules and hand sanitize and face masks, some of the things that they did in the communications was first of all made it fewer decisions fewer steps fewer things to remember and that means it's easier to do so hands face space there were times when they were really easy to follow simple steps um, there was obviously issues around the fact that the advice changed a lot and that probably provided a, a lack of clarity and made it harder another example is making it timely so you don't just need to get people motivated to wash their hands or use face masks. You need to be there at the point of need. So that means having hand sanitizers by doors, by bathrooms, places that people will walk through frequently. It means with face masks, having them 
uh, at the entrances to supermarkets so that if people do forget them, they can have them, you increase the usage by making it easy. And another step to that is actually just giving people tips uh, to make it easy. So telling them to put spares in their bag, in coat pockets, in their car. And that way it's always there, even if they've forgotten to take it with them. And all these things will not only just increase the usage in those moments, but the easier you make it, the more often people will do it and the more it will become habitual to sanitize their hands, to put on a face mask. Uh, a lot of this interestingly reflects actually research and learnings that came about from condoms, that often it wasn't about trying to convince young people that they should use condoms as much as the biggest gains were things like telling them to uh, put them in their wallet, put them in their bag, uh, or putting the condoms in clubs where they would be uh, timely and needed. And actually by doing that, you've got far more growth in usage than by um, driving people's motivation to use them. And I think this just captures again, kind of an often shown thing in behavioral science that uh, sometimes marketeers can think too much about how they can change motivation and not enough about how they can make something easy. Uh, a good example and a famous one of this was uh, change for life. So trying to get people to eat healthier food. And again, it, it kind of tapped into that sense that it's not just about changing people's motivation. There's lots of things around health where people want to be motivated, but fail to, to meet their own intention, uh, whether that's exercising, whether that's eating healthy, whether that's taking the medications as regularly as they should. One of the things Change for Life did was very much tap into that, how can we make it easy rather than just make people more motivated? So that was pre-prepared shopping lists for easy, healthy meals, simple guides to cooking them, wall charts that they could step up that constantly gave them advice on the behavior by day so they knew what to do, easy signposting for free, cheap activities. So by helping make it easy to use healthier food and make healthier meals, they were tapping into that and making it a routine. An example of how we thought about this was with Young's, where we provided uh, very simple guides to how to use their products and incorporate them into meals. Now, this obviously had the benefit of um, social videos that showed the products being used, which would attract new customers because they'd see them going into really tasty new meals. But it also provided a really easy guide of how to use the products uh, in meals, which meant that for people that kept them in their freezer, they had a really easy way to use them. The more you could drive that easy usage, the more frequently the routine would be done and the more habitual the use and therefore buying would become. And I think this is a really interesting consideration for FMCG products that can last a long time. So often cereals are in the cupboard alongside three, four other cereals. Freezer food can stay in the freezer for quite a long time and not be used. And obviously lots of things like condiments what you need to do as well as driving the motivation to buy is think about the ways that you can get people to habitually use the product, uh, whether that's campaigns by Liam Perrins that said, when you're doing cooking, use the product. Uh, and you've got the potential to not just have it added in those few instances, but to drive habitual use. If you can think of a way of having a cue, uh, making it easy, and then there's the reward inherent in the product. All of that, uh, I think, is interesting and kind of looks at the ways we can drive uh, increased usage. We can have cues to get people to use, make the routine easy, make sure there's a reward. And it's about creating new habits or the first one, piggybacking existing habits. Uh, not a lot of what we've talked about there is, is getting people to change their shopping habits. I think that is often incredibly difficult to do. Uh, for most brands, they don't control the environment in which they're bought in. If you're FMCG, the supermarket does. Uh, lots of stuff is now bought through Amazon. It's quite hard to change the shopping experience. So it can be quite hard to interrupt people's normal shopping habits. One of the things we can do, though, is target life moments, because those are key times in people's lives when their normal day-to-day -day habits, shopping habits, and general habits get interrupted and often go into a state of flux and change quite considerably. So whether it's moving house, changing job, having kids, uh, divorce, starting university, you often go to a new place, you have to adopt a lot of new behaviors and you build up a lot of new habits over those months. 
And that's an absolutely brilliant time to try and get your product or brand or service uh, in front of someone and get it built into their newly developing habits that can often drive really great results long-term because they'll continue from that point forward to use your product long-term. Uh, and there's a huge amount of research that shows the advantage of this. So academic research um, that shows people are much more likely to uh, buy a new car when they get married. I think you're four times more likely to buy a new car after getting married. Uh, lots of behavior changes linked to moving house. I think people are, it goes from about 14% to 33% more likely to adopt environmental behaviors when you move house. Uh, and there's this quote from David Halpern of the Behavioral Insights team saying, successful behavior change is sometimes about intervening at the right time. If you contact people within three months of them moving into a new house, behavioral patterns haven't reestablished themselves yet. And that's a great time to start to establish new patterns of potentially using your product. And there's lots of industry research. Uh, you can look at TGI. And if you look at people who've had life events in the last 12 months, which is often the shortest time span you can look in TGI, you'll see they're much more likely to have done anything from change the electric supplier, change gas supplier, looked at different savings accounts. Uh, and there's uh, recognized research from Richard Schon, where they did a survey of people who had switched brands recently and found that people who um, had gone through a life event were nearly three times as likely to switch brands. And what's interesting is that if you go through a life event, the relevant products and areas you're more likely to have switched. So if you buy a new house or get married, you're more likely to have changed your financial uh, setup. Or if you um, break up with someone, you're more likely to have bought a new makeup range as you start hanging in new social groups. But actually life events can affect any element of your life. So if you move home, you start going to a new supermarket, which means your established pattern of how you bought in your old supermarket is broken up. And often it's an opportunity to get people to buy new products as they start to establish a new routine in a new supermarket of how they go right around and buy different products. So it can be useful uh, for relevant categories to that life event, but also for any category uh, when people have their habits broken up. We've uh, used this sort of targeting for quite a lot of our brands uh, as it can be a really powerful way to, to get new habitual buyers. So returning to Carabao, um, we know that or knew that energy drinks were bought by very much habitual buyers that compared to kind of your normal assumption of 80, 20 heavy light buyers or even kind of 70, 30, 60, 40, 92% of purchases in the energy drink market were driven by high frequency habitual buyers. So habitual buying was incredibly important. And therefore we wanted to target life events as that moment in time when habits were broken up and we could potentially become either the new energy drink they were drinking or an energy drink um, for the first time that they would start because of the life event creating new habits. And there's lots of ways that you can target life events. So I think it's, it's fine and all well and good saying target life events, but it's important to know how to be able to do that. And digital provides lots of different ways that you can. So for instance, with mobile, there are partners that can track uh, where people's phone goes. Uh, and we did some targeting based on people moving house because it rested eight hours a night in a different place. We did some targeting about changing a new job because it would rest in a different place eight hours during the day. Uh, there's lots of targeting you can do from display. So Captify captures uh, nearly all the search that happens off Google. Uh, and that can be people searching around what to do when to have a kid, uh, things around divorce. And often you see there's a large amount of information about people searching for divorce even before um, they start divorce proceedings. So it can give you a really good opportunity to target that before it happens. Getting married, going to university, all kind of captured within search. Similarly, there's lots of partners that give you the opportunity to target people. For instance, Mumsnet will let you know uh, when people are about to or likely to have their first child or second child, uh, and you can target that moment. With Carabao, we targeted new parents, but it was specifically new fathers um, because you aren't meant to drink energy drinks if you're breastfeeding. So again, we could get that quite specific. And then social has a huge amount of opportunities for this. 
people often update their Facebook profiles or other profiles with life changes like going to university, getting married, getting engaged. Um, and there's a huge amount of search within YouTube that's really relevant. So people uh, search things such as doing up a new home. Uh, they search up advice about uh, marriage. There's lots of things that you can tap into there. And YouTube's quite good because you can use that search to then um, target really effective video ads. So it's not just kind of acquisition activity, but you can start to deliver more kind of branding video content uh, to these audiences that are going through life events. Um, and another example, just to show kind of the broad range is uh, one family again, where we know that people were very likely to, or more likely to change their financial arrangements when they've gone through a life event. And that meant that was a real opportunity to tap into those moments. Uh, and when kind of they were gonna make those changes and set up uh, new behaviors around their finances uh, and put one family in front of them. And again, there, there was lots that was relevant, recently self-employed, uh, divorced, moved home. Uh, and the final one, just because I personally found it interesting was uh, a VOD, provider TV player uh, and we found the group that was most likely to be interested in getting a new uh, video streaming service was recently divorced men um, who obviously had had their habits broken but also seemed to have a lot more time with which to sit down and want to watch TV and I think this taps into one of the things around life events which is they're incredibly powerful for establishing new habits but the more relevant it is to what's happened to someone, the often the more powerful it will be. So a makeup brand to people who have recently broken up, uh, the similar with VOD, financial advice for people that have recently got into a relationship or got married or moved house and are therefore thinking about finances, it can be even more powerful in those moments. So those are five strategies for using uh, kind of an understanding of habits to drive uptake and usage of brands. I think hopefully what this has shown is, is giving initial ideas for how you can use this uh, for your brands and for your products and services, whether that's piggybacking existing habits so that it makes it easier for people to adopt the behavior you want, creating cues and rewards so that uh, you give easy cues to people to do the behavior, rewards and the combination of those can make it habitual. Um, thinking about how you tailor those rewards so that they impact as strongly as possible, making the new behavior as easy as possible to do, which drives it into people's routine and makes it more likely to become a habit, or considering life events and actually those moments in people's uh, life when their habits get broken up and we can more likely get them to try a new product uh, that exists outside of their old habits. Uh, finally, the thing I just wanted to show you was uh, really the way to get more depth and understanding of this is to uh, read one of the many, many books that have been written around habits. Uh, there's quite a few business ones. There's also a lot around personal life. And there's some good guidance for how to create better habits for yourself that can drive success. I wanted to draw attention to two books just because uh, I found it entertaining to read both. The first is a book called Hooked by Noah Isle, who uh, I think was one of the gurus of kind of understanding habits and helped a lot of technology companies uh, understand how they could build and market their products so that people would use them habitually. Uh, and then five years later, wrote a book called Indistractable, uh, telling everyone in the public how to not get hooked uh, by technology products that had been smartly designed to make them use them habitually. Um, and I thought that was just a great combination of working one side to create a problem and then making a load more money the other side, telling people how to avoid it. Um, so that's it. Uh, I hope it's been useful. Uh, and if there are any questions, I think Peds is going to read them out. So just type them into the questions and then hopefully I can kind of go into more detail as and where it's useful. Well, fantastic. That was really, really interesting as always. And, um, and I think there's a lot of there to, to take in and a lot of useful practical suggestions. So we will circulate this presentation afterwards and it will also be available in our podcasts. So you'll be able to listen to it if you don't really want to go through it on your screens. I know we've spent a lot of time on our screens lately. But um, just to read a couple of questions, if I may, Will. Um, I've got one from Fiona. 
it says with regards to products, a lot of these are sort of lower value FMCG type products. Do you have any examples of any higher value products and how they might apply? Yeah, so I think that's a good question. I think um, often it is more relevant to products that are used frequently. So, uh, you know, a lot of these are FMCG because you can start to make the usage habitual because they're going to use them weekly. It's the same as subscription products like SBOD. As products become more expensive, the likelihood that people will habitually buy the product goes down. Um, if you're buying a car that costs 20 grand, you're not going to habitually buy it. What I would say is if you want to make someone with products that are expensive, you're not likely to get someone to habitually buy that product, but you can make them with this thinking still a consistent customer or user of your product. That means years down the line, when they look to update or replace, they will stay with you. So I definitely think these things are relevant, um, but it's about thinking about how they can be used, um, how people can be made to use the product more frequently. They can also be relevant for things that are free. So, uh, you know, it, it's relevant for social media uh, and other technology products where you're trying to drive usage so that you can spend, spend or get people to sell more advertising revenue. Great, lovely, thanks Will. Uh, I've got one from Natalie, which says, um, can you share some examples of how to apply these to digital products and apps? And I know you sort of covered that a little bit and you suggested a good book. Um, and also just before you answer that, just to say Natalie, that, that there are a lot of case studies on our website, behave.co.uk of work we've done for people like Slack and TikTok. So please feel free to go on there. But Will, I don't know if you've got any more to add. No, definitely. There's, there's lots of examples of it being done uh, with apps and technology products. We used to work with a gambling app. Uh, and one of the things that we thought was really interesting was there's two things you're trying to do if you understand the behavior. One was we wanted people to download the app for the first time. Uh, and then when we were talking to them kind of four or five years ago, you wanted people to habitually use the app. And those two occasions were very, very different. Uh, getting people to download for the first time was often about uh, hours on before the match started on a Saturday. That's when you saw that peak behavior and you told that habitual use was trying to uh, find the moments that you could get people to think, I'll make a bet. And uh, it was interesting with a technology product that there was a real gap. And this is one of the things we often find between what people think about habitual behavior and what they'll tell you. So an example with the gambling app was people said they were most likely to be with their friends uh, or in the pub when they used it. And actually our research showed that people were most likely to be on their own. They were then most likely to be with their partner. They were then most likely to be with their kids. They were then most likely to be with their parents. And they were then most likely to be with their friends. So because habitual behavior is something that we do without much conscious thought, uh, we're not that good at describing it. And so it's really important with technology products like that, things that we use on our phone, things that we do use habitually to actually get data on what people are actually doing rather than what they claim to do. And then once you have that, you can start to think about the real moments of usage that you can start to provide a trigger to. So it may not be that people actually betted that often in the pub with their friends, but contextually it's when they take their kids to football or their kids to activities, they want something to distract them while they're bored sitting on the sidelines for an hour. And it can be the same with other apps and technology products, that what are those moments of potentially boredom is the cue, waiting is the cue that you can tap into to think, here's a cue to use the product that aren't necessarily the moments people would think about when they use them because they, they don't uh, occur to them as immediately as those kind of bigger moments in their life that they'll more rationally remember. Great, thanks Will. Um, Tamsin uh, asks about research methodologies uh, that we've used. Obviously they've covered, they're quite diverse and they're based on various studies, but I don't know whether you wanna say anything else to that. Definitely, so um, I think it taps in fact just to the, to the answer I just gave, which is habits are very instinctive, automatic behaviors and we are incredibly bad at describing them, the motivations behind them, the frequency with which we do them, why we do them. We don't as individuals understand our own habits very well. And so you really need to move beyond 
self-reporting and claim data when trying to research habits because people will give you very inherently flawed answers so they can't describe it. And therefore you want to move on to things that capture actual behavior. And that can be anything from ethnography and there's lots of good autoethnography providers or just going out and observing people. It can be lots of digital data. So search behavior, uh, mobile usage, Touchpoints has quite a lot now on passive data. Um, so just trying to get to ways to uh, observe and analyze people's actual behavior, I think is really important. And then if you do want to do claim data, uh, because surveys are often more cheaper and easier, try to ask people specific questions. So don't ask them how often they use a product or uh, ask them kind of long running questions, but ask them about the specifics of when they did something in the last hour or the last 24 hours and those specific contacts. Ask that across a lot of people and total up the results and you'll get into a much closer, more accurate way of capturing people's habitual behavior than if you ask people to describe their habits themselves over a longer period of time. Brilliant. And, and obviously uh, get in touch because of our behavior consultancy can help frame those types of research or surveys or questions. Exactly. Then, or, or just ask us to do it and we'll provide brilliant research uh, approaches to answer that question. Absolutely. Um, and then the final one is not really a question, but it's from Jenna and she says, not a question, but this is fascinating. Thank you. So there you go, Will. That's a good one to end on. So Very <laughs> thank you, Jenna. So um, just a reminder, just firstly say thank you all for joining us this morning. I hope you found it useful. Do get in touch. My email's on there if you've got any questions or you just want to explore how we might be able to support or help. Um, we will circulate this presentation and recording of this presentation and make the podcast available. And for more case studies and information, please do visit our websites. So whether it's media, that's totalmedia.co.uk, or whether it's behavioural consultancy, behave.co.uk. And um, we'll let you know when the next one comes out. Have a good morning, all. This podcast is brought to you by Total Media, the behavioural planning agency, an innovative approach to behavioural insights to deliver more effective marketing results and business growth.